0: Chapter 16, verses 1 through 18, verses 1 through 7. And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig, to beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his lord's debtors unto him, and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much dost thou owest? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat, and he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. Burkett notes, Our Lord begins this chapter with the parable of a rich man's steward, who being called upon by his master to give up his accounts, in order to his being discharged from his office, casts about with himself what course he had best take to provide for his substance, when he should be turned out of his employment. At last he resolves upon this course, that he will go to his Lord's debtors and take a favorable account of them, writing down 50 for a 100, that by this means he might oblige them to be kind to him and his necessities. This is the sum of the parable. Now the scope and design of it is this, to exhort all men that are entrusted by God here with estates, honors, and authority to make use of all these unto spiritual ends, the glory of God, and the benefit of others. For we are not proprietors and owners, but stewards only, of the manifold gifts of God, and must be accountable unto him for all at last. But in the meantime, to use, employ, and improve our Lord's goods to the best advantage for ourselves, whilst we are entrusted with them. This is the scope of the parable. Now the observations from it are these. 1. That all persons, even the highest and greatest of persons, are but stewards of the good things of God. 2. That our stewardship must and shall have an end. We shall not always be, nay, we shall not be long, stewards. Three, that when we are put out of our stewardship, we must give an account of our own carriage therein. And the greater our trust was, the heavier will our reckoning be. Four, that therefore it will be our highest prudence, whilst we are entrusted with our master's goods, so to use and improve them, as may make most of our comfort and advantage, when we give up our account. Verse 8. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are, in their generation, wiser than the children of light. Burkett notes Wisely, that is, discreetly, according to the wisdom of men of this world, whose concern is only for the good things of this life. Christ commends him not absolutely as a fit example to be followed in wasting his master's goods, but comparatively as being worthy to be so far imitated by the children of light as to take the same care to secure heaven as others do to get the world. Christ commends him no farther than we do when we say such a one is a shrewd man for the world. In a word, the steward is here commended, not for his dishonesty, but for his policy, shrewdness, and sanctity, having done cunningly for himself, though knavishly for his master. From whence our Savior draws this conclusion, that the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Hence note that the generality of men are not so wise and provident for the soul and for the concernments of another world as worldly men are for the interests and concerns of this life. It is seldom seen that good men are so wise for the concerns of their soul as worldly men are for their worldly interests. Verse 9. And I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of the Mammon of Run Righteousness, that when you fail they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Burkett notes Here our Savior makes application of the foregoing parable to his disciples, where note one, the title given by our Savior to wealth and riches. He calls it Mammon and Mammon of Run Righteousness. Mammon was the name given by the heathens to the God of riches. The mammon of unrighteousness is riches unrighteously gotten. Two, the advice given by our Savior to men of wealth. Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. That is, make God your friend by a charitable distribution, that he may bless you. Make the poor your friends, that they may unitedly engage their prayers for you. Make your own consciences your friends, that they may not reproach and shame you, sting and torment you. Observe three the argument used to excite the rich to this improvement of their wealth, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. When ye fail, that is, when ye die, and your riches fail you, and can stand you in no further stead, they may receive you, what they, some understand it of the Holy Trinity, others of the blessed angels, whose offer it is to convey the charitable and good man's soul to heaven, to eternal habitation, some understand it of riches themselves, they may receive you. That is, your estates, laid out for God in works of piety and charity, may enter before you into heaven, and open the gates of eternal life for you. Not in a way of merit, but in a way of means. Lastly, they may receive you. Some understand it of the poor themselves, whose bowl our charity hath refreshed, that they will welcome us into heaven, and receive us with joyful acclamations into the eternal mansions, which are prepared for the merciful. Others say the words, they may receive you, are personally put for, that you may be received into heaven when you die. This is to imitate the wise merchant in the sending over of our money into another country by bills of exchange. Verses 10 through 12. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, having declared to his followers in the foregoing verses the great advantage they shall reap by a charitable distribution of temporal good things, He acquaints them in these verses with the great detriment and disadvantage that will redound to them if they do otherwise. 1. If they be not faithful in righteously employing temporal riches, they must not expect that God will entrust them with spiritual and heavenly, which are the true riches. God will deal with his servants as we deal with ours. Never trust them with much, whom we find unfaithful in a little. 2. If they be not faithful in the improvement of these outward things, which God entrusts them with but for a time, and must shortly leave them to others, how can they expect that God should give them those spiritual good things which shall never be taken away from them to whom they are given? Where note, 1, that the riches we have are called not our own, but another man's, if we have not been faithful in that which is another man's. Because God hath not made us proprietors, but dispensers, not owners, but stewards of these things." we have them for others, and we must leave them to others. We are only trustees for the poor. If much be put into our hands, it is to dispense to others according to our master's orders. Let us be faithful, then, in that which is another man's, that is, with what God puts into our hands for the benefit of others. Note, too, that though our gifts are not our own, yet grace or spiritual goods are our own, others may have all the benefit of our gifts, but we shall have the benefit and comfort of our own grace. This treasure we cannot leave to others, and it shall be never taken away from ourselves. Note three, that God is just and will be eternally justified in denying his special grace to those who do not make use of his common gifts. Would men be faithful in improving a little, God would entrust them with more. Did they not abuse the trust of his common gifts, he would not deny them the treasure of his saving grace, called here the true riches. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Burkett notes. Observe here a twofold master spoken of God and the world. God is our master by creation, preservation, and redemption. He has appointed us our work and secures us our wages. The world has become our master by intrusion, usurpation, and a general estimation, too many esteeming it as their chief good, and delighting in it as their chief joy. Observe, too, that no man can serve these two masters, who are of contrary interests and issue out contrary commands. When two masters are subordinate, and in their commands subservient to each other, the difficulty of serving both is not great. But where commands interfere and interests clash, it is impossible. No man can serve God and the world, but he may serve God with the world. We may be served of riches and yet serve God. But we cannot serve riches, but we must deserve God. We cannot serve God and the world both and seek them both as our chief good and ultimate end, because no man can divide his heart betwixt God and the world. Learn hence that to love the world is our chief good, to seek it as our highest interest, and to serve it as our chief commander cannot stand with the love and service which we bear and owe to God, our Maker. The world's slaves, while such, can be none of God's freemen. Verse 14. And the Pharisee also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. Burkett notes, The Pharisees were notoriously addicted to the sin of covetousness, accounting no man happy but them that were rich. And because the promises made to the Jews were generally, though not only, of temporal blessings, they looked upon poverty as a curse, and esteemed the poor accursed. John 7.49 The Pharisee, hearing their covetousness reproved, and the doctrine of charity and alms preached and enforced by our Savior, they derided him in the shamefulest manner, with the highest degree of contempt and scorn, wringing the nose and making mouths at him, as the original words seemed to import. Learn hence, one, that sinners grow very angry and impatient under the ministry of the word, when they hear their darling sin, their beloved lust, struck at, and sharply reproved. Two, that covetous men make wealth their idol, and when they hear the doctrine of a holy contempt of the world preached, and the great duty of almsgiving urged and enforced, They make it the matter of their contempt and derision. The Pharisees heard and derided him. Verse 15. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Burkett notes, Here our Savior sharply reproves the Pharisees for their horrible pride their self-justification, and vain affectation of the opinion and esteem of others. As if Christ had said, you bear up yourselves and take pride in this, that men know no ill by you, that no man can say, black is your eye, but God can see that black is your heart. You think that because you glory in your own excellences, God glories in you too, but whoever is highly esteemed by you is abominated by God. Learn that no man ought to think himself approved by God, barely because he is approved by himself, for all who justify themselves upon the goodness of their works are not good. Verses 16-18 through The law and the prophet were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man pressed into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever putteth away his wife, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband, committeth adultery. Briquette notes. Our Savior, in these words, give the Pharisee to understand that their contempt of his person and doctrine was the more inexcusable, because they live in and under the clearest light of the gospel. The preaching of the law and the prophets continued but until John the Baptist came among you since which time the gospel has been clearly preached both by him and myself unto you. And it has pleased God to give my doctrine great acceptation in the world, though you Pharisees reject it, yet everyone, that is, very many, press into it, so that the doctrine which you mock, the holy doctrine of the gospel, others will embrace. Yet lest, while Christ spake these things highly of the gospel, the Pharisees should reproach him as a destroyer of the law, he shows that the obligation of the moral law was eternal force, and that heaven and earth would sooner pass than the obligations of the law cease, which yet the Pharisees most shamefully violated, particularly the seventh commandment, which they break by permitting and practicing divorces upon unjustifiable grounds. Learn hence that the moral law in all the branches of it, which is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, is an eternal rule of life and manners, which is to stand in force as long as the world stands, and the frame of heaven and earth endures.